0: You're listening to Lost and Sound. Paul Hanford. I'm a writer, a podcaster and a DJ in Berlin. And I've always believed that one of the best ways we come together is through music. And through this series, we meet the innovators, the outsiders, the mavericks, the people who, when they make music, they do it utterly in their own way. Past guests have included Peaches, Chili Gonzalez, Ghost Poet, Letitia Sadier and first and more. And each week, I have a conversation with someone who I think approaches music in a fresh and exciting way. It is proper spring. Jackets are off. Sun is out. You might be able to hear in the background a waterfall. That is a real waterfall. It's not something I've picked from a Enya sample pack it is the waterfall in victoria park not the one in hackney not the victoria park in hackney but the victoria park in kreuzberg in berlin where i'm coming to you with the first lost and sound in about six months I hadn't intended it to be such a long gap, I'm really sorry about that. As many of you know, I I shut away for the winter and was in the lucky position to write a book in a very short amount of time. So I just locked myself away, let myself out once a day to go to a coffee shop and just wrote and wrote and wrote. And now the book is coming out. By the time you're listening to this, it might actually be out. It might be out. It's out on May the 5th on Velocity press and i'll tell you more about where you can find out more about that and 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 order it and buy it if you wish at the end of this podcast but for now i'm so happy to be back with you with lost and sounds the podcast where we meet the innovators the mavericks the outsiders the people that make music and make art and do it in their own way and what a guest i've got for you today it's matthew Herbert producer DJ composer writer all-round innovator of sound innovator of coming up with work that pushes how we use samples where samples come from the ethical responsibility that goes behind samples and this is something that we go into in the podcast about a manifesto that he drew up 20 years ago outlining how he would ethically use sound sources and 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 I found that so fascinating so we go into that At the time we spoke, which was six months ago now, um, he had his album Musker coming out. The album is now six months old. It's the third of his domestic house series where he uses samples made up of things around him. In this case, things around him in his home during lockdown. Whether he's making a brass band album about Brexit working with a hundred musicians from all across Europe or producing Rasheen Murphy mixing with Bjork, Bjork. However you want to say it, I'm never really sure actually Bowie Bowie tomato, tomato bread, I don't know. I don't know. This was a great chat. I loved it. I love chatting with Matthew. Here it is. I've been listening a lot to the new LP and um, it's the third in the Domestic House series. I think what's quite interesting is is really like, you know, lockdown happens and everyone is staying at home. We, was there a thing where you kind of thought, hang on a minute, like I've already made, uh, I'm already quite familiar with this subject. <laughs> to other artists, maybe they're kind of acclimatising to not being able to tour. And, you know, how am I going to, what what what's my immediate material around me to work with? With you, you know, you're uh no novice to this did you feel like you're on home ground
1: yeah I did and uh but that was also sort of quite a conscious um there's always also quite a conscious decision to retreat to sort of safety if you like you know which was um all the experimental stuff that I was working on at the time felt really pointless um in the face of a kind of existential crisis Mm. um where suddenly you're you know, it's not just me, but my children suddenly you're like, okay, I've now got to maybe think about feeding the children and keeping them safe. And will I have a job, you know, we will society collapse. Um, Oh my God, we've got Boris Johnson in in power. This is the worst possible thing and so on and so forth. And actually like, uh, I guess I just needed some kind of, um, that feeling of just being familiar, and there's something about those early records as well, whereby they're quite sort of cocoony in a way. There's a sort of sound to them that's quite, it's not a lot of reverb. The sounds on them are quite uh, dry. Um, yeah, there's an intimacy and a, a kind of a, a sort of bubbleness quality, bubbly in as if made inside a bubble a little bit even though they're made of objects and things like that and so i i found that that was really sort of appealing in a way at a time of um global crisis was actually sort of retreat because it's, it's one of those things which is i'd never really like to repeat myself or go back but it just it felt like one of those moments where just need we all needed a bit of comfort I guess or a bit of familiarity you know
0: <laughs> and do you feel so do you feel like that's like the first time uh with with all of the projects done where you've kind of deliberately sought out kind of comfort for yourself
1: um I, I I think probably so yeah I mean I've got quite a complicated relationship with my early music you know which is obviously like it um and I'm Happy I made it, um but I sort of—I mean, my first official release was in 1996, in January 1996, and I—I I released three records at the same time: one as Herbert, one as Wish Mountain, and one as Doctor Rocket. And the Wish Mountain stuff was where I was really at. The Wish Mountain stuff was sort of experimental techno made out of objects, and it's all sort of it's what ultimately led to all the sampling and things that I did much later on dr rocket was like almost done as a dare by my friend hal who asked me to write some electro and what i wrote was nothing like electro but he still put it <laughs> out and then Herbert was the house stuff which was just my introduction to electronic music and sort of something that i loved and the, it was that stuff it was the herbert electronic stuff that did the the best in terms of sales and attention and things like that but my heart was always much probably more aligned to the more experimental stuff. So I've got quite a complicated relationship, which is nearly every review of any of my records always uses the early stuff as a kind of benchmark, like, oh, it's not quite as good as that, or like, it's nearly as good as that, or it's it's total rubbish. (laughs) I wish he made that. (laughs) There's a lot of people wishing I'd still make records like that. And people still ask me to do that, and still DJ that kind of music, and and I, so I have a quite a complicated relationship with it, which is I'm 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 slightly in conflict with maybe some people who want to maybe listen to more music in that style than probably I want to make.
0: And do you think that there's a, a conflict anyway in in perception between? viewing artists as being either like experimental or uh, being in some ways accessible, you know, in terms of like, you can move to it or you can kind of like hum it in a car or something like that. And you, you, always sort of seem to have, you know, straddled both, you know, or kind of gone one more into the other, but there, there does seem to be a conflict in my mind sometimes between the perception.
1: Yeah. I, I, it's, it's weird, isn't it? Because actually the the great sort of f- freedom or the liberation of dance music and electronic music, particularly at the beginning with white labels where you had no idea who it was, it's much harder to do, to remain anonymous these days. But back then you could just put a record out under a name, different name every week and no one know who it was and they would just buy it if they liked it and they didn't. And in a way I did all of that stuff, lots of different names as a kind of liberation just to just play just to be just Mm -hmm. to make up stuff and today I'm gonna I even wrote a drum and bass tune once it's like uh, I'm gonna today I'm gonna be drum and bass I'm gonna do some jungle today and um we're so used to the kind of the capitalist intervention in music which is that you know the minute you sort of frame it and and turn it into a product it kind of it contains it And, you know, one of the beautiful things about music is it goes across borders, you know, physically Mm. um, and it goes around corners. And, you know, the big myth of the music industry is that music is a product or it's not. It's a it's a process. And so I, I feel like in the act of actually committing things to records and names and distributors and record labels and certain types of touring, in a way you're. It's, they're slightly sort of nails in your own coffin in a way, which it, each time it potentially limits your, um, limits that sense of play in a way, you know, mm. we it's, it's really pronounced in my label actually. So I've got a label called Accidental, which is 21 years old, and we've done quite odd hip hop and we've done um, some punky stuff and then we've done... Um, experimental classical music and then we've done pop music we've done all sorts of things and every time you sort of need to find a new audience in a way because of the way Mm. distributors are set up and and finding someone that likes all of that music it's probably just me it's probably just me but finding (laughs) someone that's happy to listen to and follow all of that stuff and it it's a really um you know if you look at you know, the other model really of making art public is the kind of, um, I don't know, maybe, I don't know a huge amount about Keith Haring. So I might be wrong Mm. about this, but I don't, I don't want to be rude about him because he's an important artist and I like some of what he's done, but that sense of immediately an identifiable style and then it's reworked Mm. and that's very easy to then hook onto and to replicate and to, commercialize or to capitalize on a sort of style or a or or a thing and i i'm much more interested in the kind of the the freedom to graze (laughs) across the plane um as i see fit or as i think the you know as i think the need need arises and um I just find that that whole process of finishing, poli- like finishing and selling records and mm. and reviews and stuff, can be quite, quite dis, quite unhelpful to the sort of general creative process.
0: Yeah, um, and and there's a little bit in the film actually where you're you're talking about. Uh, you're kind of an imagining like someone you use an example of someone else quite modestly uh, who's had like some great success and you're talking about in context of writing your book you know and then imagining the people behind you the, the critics the, the the kind of the expectation behind you you know over 10 years later can they match it up do you feel those um, expectations yourself or is, is the grazing a way where you can kind of do you find ways to navigate out of that pressure through this kind of grazing,
1: um, yeah. Give me sorry, my front door's going out. No worries, yeah. Ah, uh, can you just chuck it over the gate? Is that right? Thanks, man. Cheers, mate. Um, it's really hard, isn't it? Because, uh, no matter what you do in life, or or who you're with, or what situation your your strength becomes your weakness and vice versa you know and like that it's i think it's really it's really pertinent in relationships which is the th- the thing that you love most about the person often is the thing that drives you nuts towards the end like mm. they're just a free spirit they go wherever they don't <laughs> you know they don't turn up on time you never know when they're going to arrive it's so great they're like free of the constraints and then you're like Come on we've got a plane to catch where are you you know mm. get in the bloody car why can't you put your socks away and the i feel i feel like that quite a lot in um in my work which is and how i work which is that my the thing that i enjoy about making stuff is Oh, I could do this, could do this, could do this, could do this. Oh, right, let's do that. Oh, someone's called me and wants to do a BBC TV drama. Okay, great, I'll do that. Oh, someone else wants me to do a puppet show in Scotland this weekend. Okay, well, that sounds good, I'll do that. Oh, someone wants me to remix, like, Serge Gansborg. Okay, wow, I'm not going to say no to that. Oh, someone else wants me to go and do film for an experimental movie in the Italian Alps and perform it with Seb Rochford. Oh, well, I'm not going to say no to that. And, yeah, and I, I love that. But also, it's a kind of... um, It's a little bit of kind of slightly an odd feeling, which is you don't really fit anywhere. You know, like, I've played techno and made techno my whole life, and I love it, and I DJ, but I'm not really... He wouldn't put me down as a techno DJ. I'm really... I've done quite a lot of film and TV scores, but you wouldn't necessarily have me down as a film and TV composer. I've done installations, but you wouldn't have me down as a sound artist. And and I, in some ways I love that freedom of, of just being able to do what I want. But in other ways, it's also a little like when I see the film, for example, which, um, if people, I presume most people <laughs> know, but there's a documentary that's just out at the moment I, I went to the premiere last night which is why it's fresh in my mind but they followed me for 10 years and there's sort of quite a lot of projects in there but actually it just it's only about 4 or 5% of the work that I did during that period mm. and um, it's sometimes it's really hard to try and give an overview or try and, and the, the film is really really lucky to have them have that document and you begin to get a sense of the different different things but it's just a it's just a kind of a conflict I guess if that's the right word but just this thing that we're all in about making money paying your rent how are you going to tell people about the work that you're doing how how do you balance what you really want to do with the needs that you have of yeah just feeding a family or keeping things on track or and this i'll stop talking in a minute but in this time as well the music industry has completely collapsed as well that's probably the last mm. point which is not only are you navigating the kind of art of it but also the distribution methods and how music is heard and where it's heard has completely radically changed mm. in the last 10 years
0: yeah i mean i mean it's interesting actually you sort of Talk about that, because, you you know, you, you've always been an artist that sort of ethics aren't a sideline, you know, or they're, they're sort of like, so much of what you do is informed by ethics, that's the impression I get, at least. It feels like, you know, in this, this you know, since 2016, possibly as an English person, it feels like since 2016 with Brexit and Trump, and then with the, uh, the pandemic as well, and... And things like, things like the metaverse as well. Um, it feels like a lot of these concerns that maybe I'm speaking as a Western cis male who's had certain luxuries in life. I've been able to kind of brush under the carpet a bit. They're a lot more on your nose now. Um than they were like when, when you kind of started, I'm going to talk a little bit, ask you a little bit about the manifesto and a little bit as well. Yeah. Um, when you sort of laid down publicly certain ethical principles about your work, do you feel that that's now these things have kind of got to a head where we have to deal with them? Has it changed your perception to your ethics?
1: Um, that's a, that's a a good question. I just, I, I finished my PhD during lockdown so I wrote a lot about ethics and thinking about it and I was just calling up a a quote whilst you think but Levinas um, argues there's no model of transcendence outside ethics so what he's saying is that you can't begin to transcend unless you unless you've addressed the ethical position that you find yourself in and I guess that's that's been the fundamental, I mean, I, it's taken me a while to realize that. And as often the way when you read people it helps articulate something that you felt for a while, but um, you know, there was always a kind of sense that, or it was always framed maybe how other people would talk about me or maybe how I talked about myself, of course, but that the sort of ethics were, and the politics were a kind of, a core plank of what I was doing, but it was, it was almost like a genre, you know, like folk music or what have you. It's like a kind of a politicized form of music. Whereas actually, um, as I've got older, I've realized that it's completely fundamentally related to the act of creation. You know, there's a kind of a, I think there's a kind of both a pessimism and an optimism, an optimism in creation. There's a kind of a a central pessimism. I think that I need to create something because the thing that I want to create doesn't exist yet in the world. It's sort of almost like an absence there's an acknowledgement that there's an absence that you need to fill with work. And then of course there's the optimism of like, well maybe this, this thing that I will make will fill that absence. And of course, sometimes it does and sometimes it, it doesn't, but actually that, no transcendence without ethics for me is like, I can't, you know, and your, your point about privileges and things like that. It's like, I can't, um, for me as a white, uh, a white male with some money to stand up and go sing a song that goes, everything's fucking great is not, is very different to somebody who's got a, grown up or in a very different position or is a climate refugee or or asylum seeker or is in syria or whatever you know like but i think just being conscious of where you are and this is i guess part of where that the woke phrase come from of just being aware and and um alive to the 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 forces that have brought you to this to this point seems to me that's not a unreasonable ask of a of an artist to do that i think what i find really and sort of answer the last part or maybe even answer your question properly but the the thing that i find um the thing that i find very difficult is this um separation of political of what it means into a sort of like a genre as I was saying or a subcategory of how we how and why we write music, you know. Um you know so much um like the Rolling Stones music for example, mm. like the kind of music they're making now, that's just as political as anything that I might do it to, you know, the status quo is working just fine for them, you know. Mm. And the as George Orwell says, you know, if you're choosing to leave out politics, the absence of politics in a way that tells you something um that tells you something as well that's a political statement or a political Mm. choice in and of itself you know or or 50 cent saying get rich or die trying you know that's the same that's the same um political message as the republican party and it's and it's um so we've sort of come to mean politics or political positions as a kind of a left-wing thing or as a progressive ideal but actually politics permeates all that is all our all our positions, all our work, and all that kind of stuff. And it just, for me, I find it frustrating because um, there doesn't seem to be, in the wider music industry, there doesn't seem to be a recognition that those two things are linked. So a a good example for me would be the Brexit Big Band, which is, I made this record with a 1,000 musicians over three years, um, a huge amount of effort got someone to swim the English Channel for me. We rented a Second World War plane that we took up. Um we flew up. I had somebody walk the Northern Ireland border recording sounds, all of that, over a two week period. And we deep fried a trumpet. Did all sorts <laughs> of things and uh, got a choir from the east of Germany uh, East Berlin and a choir from the west of Berlin and and <clears throat> worked together. And um it didn't really get any coverage. It didn't really um it got some sort it got some coverage when it started, but actually as a piece Mm. of work or as a body of music or as as a sort of thing, it didn't really, didn't really get many reviews. It's it's not in any top 100 records in the summing up of the year. It didn't catch any kind of public imagination really, or sort of get much support from music industry people that we wrote to um, saying, do you want to be part of this or never got back to us or said no or whatever it might be. And then I find it really, what I find disappointing is that here we are then um, four or five years later moaning about visas for musicians in Europe. And th- it was visible out. you know, four or five years ago, it was, you know, we could see this coming down the line. <clears throat> and when I was trying to create work that de- de- deals with that head on, you just don't get, didn't really f- feel like I had the support. And for me, that's what I, that's what I mean about the kind of the politics and the process and how the music's released, um, all my music's released independently, for example, how it's released and how it's distributed and how you do the gigs and all of that kind of stuff. All of that is all baked into the whole, into the whole gesture. And, and when you start to pull it apart like that and separate it out, like, Oh, this is political music. Oh, this is pop music. Oh, this is whatever. For me, it starts to dilute all those, the, 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 the power that's implicit in the creative instinct
0: yeah yeah like every action is a political action you know like, like what you're saying and even even the absence of consciousness of political action is a political action isn't it and, that's right and, and, and like the you know so I think it was over 20 years it was about 20 years ago that you came up with this contract between yourself the personal contract for composition of music incorporating a manifesto of mistakes and um what was your thinking at the time? What led up to doing this contract? What was the sort of surroundings and your you know, what, what was the sort of zoom into <laughs> <laughs> that moment?
1: Um I, I think I was just really distracted by the, the the distribution and performance of music, like the sort of the job of it. Just got really distracting, which I as I said when I my first three records uh, the the one that for me was probably the most disposable in a way, or disposable was doing it a disservice. But one that for me was like about simplicity and pleasure or something was the one that was got the most attention. And then of course you start getting gigs and you and they ask you to play that kind of music. And I ended up traveling the world and performing and having meeting fantastic people and generally having a very good time. So I'm really not moaning about it. But what happened was that. I began to lose the, I I began to forget that actually something deeply and profoundly incredible has happened in music in my lifetime, which is you can now make music out of anything. And I I always say this and then I, and I was like, then I try and pick three things and I try and do it. It's almost like a, it's like a, a sort of difficult form of torture i put myself in but i try and come up with three different things each time in interviews to say that you can make music out of so today what's today today is mm. 5th of november okay so it's bonfire night in the uk so you can make it out of fireworks going off or you can make it out of what else is going on today you could make it out. It's cop 26 so mm. you could make it out of um coal the coal fired power station that britain has just commissioned and that they're building or you could make it out of um uh what else is going on today um my son is doing duke of edinburgh award scheme where you go camping with friends mm. in the woods and they teach you how to like light a fire and stuff like that so you can go and record that so there's three pieces of music that we could make today and but all the software, all the industry, all the promoters, all of the hardware, the keyboards, everything is set up to make it so much easier to just sit down at a piano and or write a synth or write with a drum machine or you know the Apple Logic that I'm recording this onto has all these loops that you mm. can just drag and drop. You know you can just literally just drag a drum beat and then drag a a, guitar, a bass guitar part, and it automatically syncs it up, puts it in the right key. They've even got vocals on it. They've got one of the vocals that goes, amazing. <laughs> <And> you, can, <laughs> you can have a piece of music with just... I could, I could write a piece of music in 30 seconds just by dragging these things and some dude going, amazing, over it <laughs> uh, in a couple of places. But like everything is set up to sort of replicate what already exists. And so the manifesto Mm. for me was like, forget that. Like that's not, that's exciting. And and that opens up musical possibilities to people that maybe wouldn't have had it before. And that's a really Mm. positive thing. I wanted to completely put it down. But actually for me, the real revolution in music is that you can now make it out of a suicide bomb explosion in Kabul. And it's the sound of life and death. You can now, music is now documentary. It's now like a shift in art from from pencil and paper leapfrogging photography and going straight to video and like all the ethics and the power and the meaning and the storytelling that that suddenly um, invokes or opens up to you um, is at your disposal and so the manifesto was really there just to try and keep me focused uh, on this insanely incredible revolution that it's the biggest revolution in music since somebody hit a I don't know since the piano, maybe I don't know, but like the capacity now to, to make music out of anything that we can think of mm. that makes a sound is extraordinary. And to remind myself not to forget that extraordinary thing. Yes.
0: So, do you, do you check in with this uh, manifesto from time to time? Do you, or is it sort of so ingrained in you that you don't need to?
1: Um. Yeah, it's very. I'm very conscious of it. It's there all the time. And uh, this, the last record I did, Musker, I just is out the window. You know, I I'm like, that's part of it. Was the freedom just to do whatever I wanted to do? It was, it was about comfort or what have you. But I did a, um, there's a track called the Three W's on the first big band album I did called Goodbye Swing Time, and it was made out of um it was about all the stories that we weren't learning politically so about like the school of americas um it, i won't go to the school of americas now people can google the school of americas and the cia funding of latin american dictatorships and things and printing out these things and i made a beat out of a printer printing out this information and there's all sorts of other sounds on there and then the big band that i spent a lot of time and effort and craft and money recording at Abbey Road and all this kind of stuff. Every single sound I'd recorded with a microphone. Um, And then I put like a synth bass on it and it sounded really good. It was probably one of the best mixes, technically speaking, one of the best mixes I've ever done. But when I listened to the whole record, it's the one synthesizer on the whole record. Mm. And I was like, I can't have that. So I I re-recorded it with bass clarinet. I recorded a bass clarinet note and made the bass line with that. And the song's not as good technically as a result. So I, I made the piece less good, but it was so, it was so the integrity, the sort of structural integrity of it was really important to me. And that felt more important than the individual noise to the point where the, you know, I would want to be able to sit 20 years from now, which I guess is now, (laughs) speaking to somebody like you and be able to say that record, I was responsible for every single sound on that record. And I recorded it with a microphone by hand. I didn't want to put, have a caveat that says, Oh, and by the way, the bassline on the three W's is a sine wave. <laughs> um, so it's really, it's, it's useful. It's useful in that way. Just to, just to keep me, um, just to keep me focused on it. You know.
0: Yeah, yeah. And are there any, because a lot of it's about accidents as well and incorporating accidents, are there, are there any accidents that have that kind of come to your mind right now that you're really glad that you have that set out, uh, had the manifesto set out, that you wouldn't have come across otherwise?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, every single day, every time you work with sound and you sort of surrender to it, it's you get something you get something special there's a there's um a a recording studio that i had um by train tracks and um i have told this story before so apologies to anyone that's heard it but the there was a a quite dangerous travel crossing near it and as it would come by the trains had a, a sign saying do your horn to warn people and i was recording this um piece with Eska for the second big band record. And I said, and she was singing, could this be one of those days when everything goes right. And it was like perfect timing from this train horn. And I, and it's still in there. You can still hear it on the record. It's quite quiet, but it's still there. You can hear it as it goes past. And actually that, that sound, Of this train is on Mm. loads of my it's like it's on loads of sounds that i recorded because it was right next to my studio things and then um then a few weeks later somebody i knew killed themselves on that crossing Mm. and then a week later somebody else and then a week later somebody else there was three suicides in two weeks on this crossing and suddenly that sound had complete that was embedded in these pieces of music or um It's completely transformed you know and suddenly that becomes a memorial or it becomes you know and that sound means hundreds of things to hundreds of different people so somebody who lives near the tracks who's maybe married to one of the people that it's incredibly a pain that's an incredibly painful sound to somebody that maybe had their first kiss standing by on the bridge they were kissing the train went under and horn driver the train driver did the horn that would have meant something else to them there might be somebody else who is a train spotter who is listening to different types of train horn and able to tell what kind of trains it is there might be somebody else whose um, partner is the train driver and thinks Mm. oh I'm you know so this capacity for sound to carry all these stories to lots and lots of different people so exciting to me and if I'd have cut that out it's a it's like um, if I didn't, if I wasn't open to those mistakes, then it would have been, um, you lose all that richness, you lose those connections. Um, I think it's to the detriment of the work ultimately. And, um, and so that line, you know, could this be one of those days when everything goes right and then you hear a sound associated with suicide? It's suddenly... By surrendering to sound, I guess is what I'm saying, and surrendering to these mistakes, the whole of the process just multiplies again and again in ways that you that are out of your control and thrilling and compelling ways i think
0: yeah and it i I really resonate with that, and with the book as well, the way you describe the sounds um It's what what kind of occurred. I don't know if this is even a question or just a reflection that you might have a response to. But um, the thing that kind of really sort of shocked me in a good way was that. A lot of the time, when I understand about your work, when I when I kind of go into understanding the processes or with looking at the book, it feels like magic realism to me. But yet, it's actually just you're actually just describing things as they are. A lot of the time, um, is it? It's quite weird how reality is when the perceptions turn becomes something that feels kind of like fantastical.
1: Yeah, I. Thank you for saying that. No one's ever said that to me, and I—that's what it feels like. It feels like magic realism, you know. Um, it feels like um, there's a. In fact, my first website was called Magic and Accident dot com, and actually, on the original records, it, it still says that. And that's a quote from Don DeLillo from Underworld, and he talks about that there was—is it a baseball game, and everybody's there waiting for something between magic and accident to happen, you know. Mm. And that feels like that kind of moment of creation. You're like, or oh, some, you know, something could happen or we could turn something or it can, something's created from nothing. And I, and that really, um, it really feels like that when you start, because it's a kind of, when I wrote the book to go into writing the book, which is just, it's a description of a record I'll never make. Um, and, it's called the music and it's uh, 50,000 words long. And each track is a different um, um, piece of music and they're all on sort of different themes or what have you. But when you start to like let your imagination think about what's really going on, it's it's this really weird combination exactly that of like is this fiction or is this non-fiction? So for example, right now we can't hear it, But there are, I don't know, pick a number, uh, prawns, like commercially farmed Pacific prawns in mangrove swamps uh, in Asia. There are, I don't know, 10 billion prawns right now feeding or their legs are going underwater. You You could put a hydrophone in all the ponds of the commercial prawn farms in Asia and listen to that right now. So whilst I'm speaking that's going on. But also at the same time, Donald Trump's somewhere doing something like, uh, you know, he might be going to the toilet or he might be playing, well, he's probably playing golf um, <laughs> or eating a cheeseburger. Who knows what it is. But well, then you think, well, if Donald Trump's eating a cheeseburger right now, then right now you could also hear all the people that voted for him that happen to be eating a cheeseburger right now. So, I don't know how many that would be, how many people that vote for Trump in America that would be eating a cheeseburger right now? 10,000, 20,000. There's got
0: to be, there's got to be quite a large amount. I reckon. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, you, so suddenly you've in your head, you've built, and I've done nothing. All I've done really is sort of point to it really, which is just like, actually, mm. okay, let's hear all these like commercial prawn farms. And then over the top, loads of Trump supporters eating cheeseburgers. <laughs> <laughs> and what what's the you know I, i've just picked two things at random but what's the connection well you can start to tell stories about well the food chain and farming and processed food but then you can also tell a story about the vietnam war for example and agent orange that and all the deforestation caused by the napalm and the chemical agents dropped by american forces in cambodia and vietnam to which after that, only certain crops would kind of grow, or um, uh, coffee being one of them, and uh, robusta beans, and the, all the chemicals and things like that. And I'm just whatever. I'm just not necessarily writing a piece of music that, but you just this really, you're just in a weird space. You know, it's just a really deliciously weird space where your your brain has the capacity to imagine. The world as it really is, but you can't hear it. It's like um, it's like out of sight, it's out of reach, but it somehow it's also reachable, you know. And I think I wonder as well whether it's because the brain is, um, I've read it's come up twice in the last two weeks. This, and I'd never thought about it before. But the brain is inside your body in a black mm. hole, like it hasn't. Your brain has never. Your brain has never tasted. Hot chocolate, or seen the sunlight, or it's never heard Miles Davis or what have you. All it's done is it's processed electronic and chemical signals and come up with an approximation of what the world is like. But actually, the brain is, it's not like your hands, which have touched people or anything like that. So, actually, in a way, your brain is, hasn't experienced any of these things either. You know, it's a really, it's, I love this thought, the idea that your whole consciousness or your whole experience of the world is actually. Imagined anyway, you know, because or mm. constructed anyway from this thing, this organ in your head that is just processing processing chemical stuff. Sorry, I wait for my phone to trying to stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We can all sit and imagine the um, imagine who it is. Um,
0: yeah. It's quite interesting for a a talk about sounds around to have some of these sounds coming in through the podcast sometimes as well. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, Sorry, we'll stop in a minute. That's okay. Oh, a little knock, knock, knock at the end. That's quite new. I hadn't heard that. That's nice. Um, (laughs) So one of the things that I really love about sound is how different our interpretations are. So I could play you the sound of leaves through a tree and you might imagine a a single poplar tree in a, a kind of a Kent field on a line of, mm. of Kent uh, poplars next to an orchard on one side and uh, a field of weeds on the other with a little stream in front or something like that. And then I might imagine a, a silver birch tree, um in the forests um between uh st petersburg and moscow that can be seen from the train just in the middle of nowhere and one and one of your listeners might imagine um the sound of an ash tree um by a village pond or something like that um but we all have different things whereas if i just show you a picture of a tree and wind going through a tree it's what it is there's no there's some variation in what we might see in terms of color or perception or what have you but ultimately we're all looking at an oak tree or something like that and it's it's an oak tree on outside boris johnson's house or something like that that's just what it is you know there's no variation Mm -hmm. and i think that's tying into your magic realism thing or like that process of imagining sound is that we are um, constantly investing ourselves into it. You know, you have to engage with it. You have to, it's your brain creating these sounds, particularly, you know, as they're written down. And that's really something as well that I like to play with. You think this sound might be one thing and it and it's not. So there's a sound I really love at the beginning of a track I did called moving like a train from scale. I'm not totally convinced I got the, track completely right but that's another story um but the it starts with a sounds like a car starting like mm. but it's not it's the sound mm. of a coffin lid being pulled off recorded from the inside so but oh, uh, sorry being pushed on so it's as if you were being buried alive basically it's the sound mm. of someone pushing a coffin and uh, before burying you alive but it sounds like a car and it's just a weird creepy noise at the beginning and you might not know what mm. it is and maybe you don't know until now and now you'll go oh oh my god don't think i want to listen to that again (laughs) or like oh i really want to hear that sound or whatever it might be Mm. but we'll all imagine something different and that's something that can be played with as a material which i think for me is a liberation compared to a piano if i just sit down the piano we're all i'm up against every person that's ever written a song on a piano and we're all vying for the same imaginary space whereas this is like it's like keys to the kingdom you know (laughs)
0: <laughs> and just finally like what would you i mean because we're talking earlier on about you sort of mentioned a piano um i'm talking earlier on about the kind of technology available now uh to make music and uh obviously it's liberating in some ways and we've talked about a lot of the ways it isn't uh but for say young people that are kind of just starting out or anyone i don't i mean i have got to rephrase that It shouldn't be young people for anyone that wants to start making music what kind of advice could you give someone to avoid the grid you know like the sort of the grid of the algorithm and these things what what would be like a good starting point to keep your mind open to the possibilities around
1: um i i think there's i, I sort of feel like there's probably two ways in to to it mm. I favor the second one, but I do sometimes do the first one. The first first one is you just begin, you just start. One day you just start and you see what happens. And, you know, probably vast, vast majority of music is written that way. You just sit at a piano and you start playing some chords until you find one that moves you or that sounds a way that you like it to, to sound, or you start with a beat and you write something. That's one way. But for me, I find that hard. Um, I find that so much harder because you're then, whether you like it or not, you're kind of implicated in the grid, as you call it. You know, you're then, mm. you're working what, with what you've immediately got to hand in a way, you know, which is, if you just start writing that moment of creation is, can be five minutes, can be 10 minutes that you write a chord pattern. It can be 30 seconds. You write a brilliant chord pattern, you know? Um, I mean the best work that I've ever done, I was, I think, or in terms of, um, a coherent single musical gesture, um, have all been done in just under an hour. So, Mm. Um, and you can tell because they're the ones that are most successful of my work. So Café de Flore, I wrote um, I wrote in 40 minutes from start to finish. Um, I wrote a track called The Audience on bodily functions. I did that in an hour and a half. And I did a remix for Maloko, Sing It Back, um, which was just over an hour. It was about an hour and 15 minutes from start to finish of the whole thing. And those three pieces are sort of ones that have probably got got me the most amount they're the ones that people come up to me and say oh i really like these i don't they're not the favorite my favorite piece of music that i've worked on or or written but as a single coherent musical gesture that's so you know that's what it that's how long it takes to write a, a good bit of music i think is it um although it's obviously a subjective thing about whether you think they're good or not i'm not saying those three are good but I, what i'm saying is is that the the gesture the sing the sort of coherent gesture of the piece of music I think works in those three pieces because it's so quick and it's so mm. so it sort of comes out of you in a way that makes sense but to have so it's a very short window that you've got and you're always on the back foot if you just start writing because you've like oh I need some drums you need to go and sort of find some drums or I need to find this or what have you the way I much prefer to write and this is my sort of this is my real answer to your question is, is to not go anywhere near a studio and to write the piece of music before you even begin. So right now I'm doing some music for a film in Chile, a musical in Chile, a, a political musical. And, um, I've employed a sound field recordist in Santiago to go and record uh, the city statues, the wild dogs um, outside the courts, outside the police station, uh, sirens. Um, also, we're going to take chants and the sounds of stones banging on metal fences um, at, as in protests, pots and pans of the protests, a whole sort of wider range. You get the idea but sort of a whole wider range of sounds. And they're going to send those back to me. I'm going to, turn them into samples that i can play and then i'll begin mm. and suddenly i'm i know i've already got all these materials under me i know what i'm doing i'm writing a piece of music that hopes to capture some of that spirit of what was going on there i'm going to write work with songwriters over the top of it to come up with lyrics and the things that tell the story for the film but underpinning it is a very clear central idea and that's, and it's really achievable. Whereas if I say to you today, write a piece of music about anything using anything, you'd be like that. It's like if I say to you, what's your favorite something, book or film? You sit, you know, it's a hard question to answer because suddenly you're like, I love this playing charades. The other day we were playing charades. And uh, people would stand up and just go, oh, I can't think of anything. You're like, wait, you've got all of literature. All films, all music, all theatre, all musicals. You can do anything and you can't think of anything. All you can think of is like Jaws or Star Wars or something that we've already done. Like it's overwhelming, you know, the possibilities of music are completely overwhelming. So if you immediately, if you spend time thinking about why am I writing this piece of music, what's the story behind it, what materials are the best To use to convey that story, then all that hard think, all that work has been done in a way, so that you can just Mm. get on with the job of writing a a very specific piece of music. And the thing that no one ever told me when I started, and my sort of one bit advice is, if you want it to do it for a job, you have to write. It's not like writing ten great songs or what have you. You have to write twenty five thousand. You know. And so at the moment, I'm doing, um, doing a TV series. I'm doing series two of Noughts and Crosses, which I did for the BBC last year. And I wrote um, 400 pieces of music just for episode one. And there's no... That's just one job out of sort of 30 or 40 I did in the year. So last year, I I probably wrote an average of five to 10 pieces of music every day that was in the studio. Mm. And so to just sit down at the piano and write and to just sit at the piano or a guitar or a drum kit or drum machines or or whatever it is that the normal materials that we or normal instruments that we might use to try and create, you know, three or four or 5,000 original pieces of music a year using that stuff is completely, um, that's overwhelming, you know, feels impossible. Whereas each of them, I collected the sounds before it. So I knew what I was writing. I had a whole library of sounds. and They're completely different set of sounds for Noughts and Crosses that I did for my own album, for this project, for that project. You assemble all of these noises and then you begin writing. So my my advice would always be, spend a good you know few days before going into the studio working out what you're going to do and then get your materials ready and then and then use it
0: thank you so much yeah N- no it's worries absolutely.
1: that was my might have heard my son's made lunch and he's just ringing the bell to tell
0: so oh, it's perfect I think we've hit the yeah because it's 12 where you are is one where I am so oh, it's yeah, it's okay. just general lunchtime o'clock isn't it so <laughs> yeah. um Matthew thank you so so much that's I really that was a real pleasure like hearing your words and stuff thank
1: oh, thanks for talking
0: to me so thank you so much Matthew Herbert for chatting with me back at the beginning of November back before I shut away I uh, Thanks to Leanne Meissen there for arranging it and for her eternal patience in, in, in me just not putting this episode out because I was I was going, oh, my God, i got to write a book and loving writing a book, but also thinking, oh, my God, i got to write a book and just doing that all of the time. The album Musker is out now on Accidental Records. The film about Matthew, A Symphony of Noise, is available You might have to look around a little bit for it, but well, well, well worth seeing it. The book, the music, an album in words, is out as well. And the manifesto is very, very easy to Google. My book, Coming to Berlin, Global Journeys into an Electronic Music and Club Culture Capital, is out on May the 5th on Velocity Press. You can buy it via Velocity Press's website. There's a link in the description thanks to ESO for the music you always hear at the beginning at the end of this show to Leanne again for her eternal patience in in how long it took me to put this out to peradio.org in Berlin who make podcasts in English about Berlin from Berlin and most importantly to you have a fucking lovely week and I'll see you soon